Chapter 46, we're going to read the first 12 verses for the first portion. It says the word of the Lord, which came to Jeremiah, the prophet against the nations. Against Egypt concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish and which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. Order the buckler and shield and draw near to battle. Harness the horses and mount up, you horsemen. Stand forth with your helmets, polish the spears, put on the armor. Why have I seen them dismayed and turned back? Their mighty ones are beaten down. They have speedily fled and did not look back for fear was all around, says the Lord. Do not let the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape. They will stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. Who is this coming up like a flood whose waters move like the rivers? Egypt rises up like a flood and its waters move like the rivers. And he says, I will go up and cover the earth. I will destroy the city and its inhabitants. Come up, O horses and rage, O chariots, and let the mighty men come forth. The Ethiopians and the Libyans who handle the shield and the Lydians who handle and bend the bow. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. The sword shall devour. It shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain you will use many medicines. You shall not be cured. The nations have heard of your shame and your cry has filled the land for the mighty man has stumbled against the mighty. They have both fallen together. You'll remember, for those of you who've been with me, and if you've forgotten, when we opened our study in the book of Jeremiah in the opening chapter in the sixth verse, the Lord spoke to Jeremiah when he called him to ministry. And he says, behold, I formed you in the womb before I formed you in the womb. I knew you before you were born. I sanctified you and I ordained you to be a prophet for the nations. Jeremiah was called to speak a word of warning and prophecy to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. But his ministry wasn't restricted to Judah and Jerusalem, but it extended to all of the nations. And so in these final chapters, 46 through 51, the Lord will prophesy about the unfolding future of the nations that surround Jerusalem and Judea. I also want to remind you. That Jeremiah has been at it for 40 years. Year one, prophesying, proclaiming a judgment's going to come from the north. Please turn from your sin. Please be reminded that there's a savior. You can look to him for help and wholeness. Year five, year 10, year 15, year 20, year 25, year 35, year 40. He's been doing this for 40 years. And he's had little or no success by worldly standards. 
Because not hundreds, not thousands, not tens of thousands of people have heard his message and turned from their sin. There hasn't been a revival that gripped Jerusalem and swept Judea. The judgment came. And now the message is addressed to the nations. The cup of wrath that was focused on Jerusalem and Judah now gets focused on the surrounding nations. God is in charge. God is sovereign. And that's part of what, we're, what we learn from examining these prophecies to the ancient nations that surrounded Israel and Judah. Because we're beginning to understand something that God has a plan and a purpose. And that in, as his plans and purposes unfold that he's orchestrating everything in order to accomplish those plans and purposes. And so God raises up one nation and he lays down another. Why is that again important to us? Not only is it because God is in is in charge, but it should cause you not to get too alarmed on any given election cycle. You're going to hear a lot of hyperbole and rhetoric unless you vote for me. The end of the world, as we understand it, is going to take place. Hey, you know what? This world is not going to come to an end until God says we're done. The good news, God has unfinished business with the nations. The bad news, the unfinished business is going to come much quicker than most of us realize. Over and over and over again, we read in God's word, he says, this is what I plan. This is what I purpose. This is what I will to do. And whenever you open up your Bible and you see God say, I will. Or I won't. You should underline it. Does God control the course of the nations? Yes. Is God truly in control of everything? Yes. Does he truly cause all things to work together for good for those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose? The answer is yes. A.T. Pearson used to say history is his story. History is his story. From the time of Adam, the time of Abraham, the time of Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, the time of through the judges and through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. God is orchestrating everything in the direction of a savior who will come and redeem the world. We're given a glimpse of Egypt's future. The Lord has a message for Egypt. Now, you'll remember, remember, Egypt is the place where the children of Israel experienced bondage, captivity and slavery. This is the place where God sent Moses to liberate them and to send them back into the land. This is the place where Jeremiah and his companions, after Babylon has destroyed Jerusalem wrongfully, wickedly, disobeyed God and left Judah. And thought that they could find refuge in Egypt. And the Lord spoke to them and said, this is a bad idea because I have a plan and a purpose for you. And I don't want you to run back to that place where I delivered you from. And so he has a message for Egypt. The Lord has determined to judge Egypt for three main reasons. Pride, brutality and idolatry. And so we're given a glimpse into a famous battle that will quite literally change the course of history. It's called the Battle of Carchemish. 
Look at verse one. The word of the Lord, which came to Jeremiah, the prophet against the nations. Jeremiah will prophesy against Egypt, against Moab, against Philistia, against Ammon, against Edom, Kedar and Hatsor. And then we're going to give a glimpse into the future of Damascus or what you and I would now call modern Syria. And of course, Babylon, which is Iraq. In verse two, it says against Egypt concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. Pharaoh Necho had left Egypt and had gone north. As he went north, he went through the area that you and I would call Judea and Jerusalem. He went a little bit further to a place called the Valley of Megiddo. There in the Valley of Megiddo, he met the forces of King Josiah. Necho was going to join forces with Assyria in order to do battle against Babylon. Josiah got in the way and was killed. The people of Judah installed Jehoiahaz as king, but Necho deposed him and made Jehoiakim the ruler. And we find that out in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 29. Now, you have to understand something that in this point in human history, in about the 7th century B.C., which is 605 B.C., there are two main superpowers. Babylon is on the ascendancy and Egypt is on the ascendancy. Both are vying for world power and world control. And that little strip of land between the north of Assyria and then Babylon and the south is Egypt. And so Judah becomes sort of the bridge where all of the tragedy seems to take place. The power of Egypt had started to decline. Necho goes to the Euphrates River to a place called Carchemish. It literally means in the language Fort Chemosh. Chemosh is a Babylonian deity. And so in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, Necho who is the second ruler in the 26th dynasty. We know that he ruled from 609 to 593 BC. It gives us the exact date of this battle. The reason why this battle becomes such an important point is because all of human history is going to be different as a result of this battle that takes place. We can point to battles throughout time and space that have happened like that. The Battle of Marathon, where the Persians come in the 4th century and they, they, they meet the Greeks head on. And, and the big question is whether or not the Persians are going to infiltrate Greece and Europe. And all of Western civilization is going to be different. And democracy, certainly in its budding roots, isn't going to take hold if the Persians take over. There's major battles that you can think of that if they went one way or the other, all of human history could change. This is one of those battles. 
The defeat at Carchemish signals the end of Egypt's power. It signals the beginning of the rise of Babylon, of power and supremacy. Why is all of that important? Because the book of Daniel, which is going to come later, the king of Babylon is going to be that golden head of human government that's going to give way to the Persians, that's going to give way to the Greeks, that is going to give way to the Romans, that is going to usher in the life of the ministry of Jesus. See, this is part of the reasons why we study the Bible. It's so that we can begin to understand how all of these historical events begin to form and coalesce into a meaningful expression of what God is doing in human history. And by the way, archaeology um, indicates that the city was destroyed at exactly the time that the uh, that the Bible indicates there was Egyptian settlements there in Carchemish. And then, of course, there were Babylonian settlements. And so in verse three, it says, order the buckler and shield and draw near to battle. This is poetic language. The Lord is speaking and he's he's giving you God's view of a battle that's begin to take place. And the and, and so here here's what's happening. The Egyptians are called into combat. The troops are called to battle. Order the buckler and the shield. It's it's an idiomatic expression, a way of saying troops prepare yourselves. We're going to go forward into battle. It's you, you can almost hear. The leader saying, grab your weapons, prepare for close combat. That's what's happening. Harness the horses, mount up, you horsemen, stand forth with your helmets, polish the spears, put on the armor. Jeremiah is describing soldiers. They're preparing for war. He's saying, prepare the infantry, prepare the the cavalry, harness the horses. What he means by that isn't just to harness them, to ride them. It's harness the horses to the chariots. This is the heavy armored vehicles of the ancient world. Helmets were rarely worn except for ceremony or battle. And so he says, polish the spears, put on the army, prepare for war. Verse five. Why have I seen them dismayed and turned back? Their mighty ones are beaten down. They'd speedily fled and did not look back for fear was all around, says the Lord. Here's the picture. The picture is of two armies, the army of Egypt the army of Babylon. And they're getting ready to have a confrontation. But the Egyptians are starting to lose heart. Do not let the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape. They will stumble and fall toward the north by the river Euphrates. In other words, he's predicting specifically, precisely where the battle's going to be. It's. By the river Euphrates, who is this coming up like a flood whose waters move like the rivers? Now, if you can imagine through the benefit of modern game technology, imagine you're seeing literally thousands, tens of thousands, 20,000, 30,000 40,000 soldiers on opposite sides. Who is this coming up like a flood? If you can imagine an army with 20 or 30,000 people and they're converging over the mouth of a river, it looks like a flood. It looks like a flood of people. Egypt rises up like a flood and the Egyptian army prided themselves that they were like the Nile, the unstoppable river that would flow from the, from the bowels of Africa towards the mouth of the Mediterranean and the 
the river Nile would overflow the banks and it would flood the lower regions. And just like you can't stop the river, just like you can't stop the flood. I've been watching because my family lives in New Orleans, of course, and this is the anniversary of the hurricane Katrina seven years ago. Two years ago, exactly, my father died on this day. This flood comes. You see the hurricane come into the mouth of the Mississippi. You see the levees give way. You see this unstoppable storm pushing the waters over the sides of the embankment. The Egyptian army is like a flood, an unstoppable flood. Egypt rises like a flood as its waters move like rivers, it says in verse 8. And he says, I will go up and cover the earth. I will destroy the city and its inhabitants. The Egyptian people felt like they were born to rule the world. That they were unstoppable. The way Egypt before Babylon would adopt its methods, the way that they would fight is they would come to a city and they would say surrender or die. That's the terms. Surrender and submit to us or die. Egypt had been a glorious power, but now it was on the very last legs of its ascendancy. But in its pride and in its arrogance, it thought that it could stop Babylon. But God had a plan. God's plan was that Babylon would have the ascendancy. God's plan was that he was going to use Babylon to discipline Judah and Jerusalem. God was going to use Babylon in order to isolate the children of Israel for a period of time so that he could discipline them. So that the stories of Daniel and the adventures that would take place and the revelations that would take place about the kingdoms of humanity would begin to take place. And so the Egyptian army looks like the swollen river. Egypt thought of her army like a flood. And so the generals order the attack. That's what that is saying. I'll go up and cover the earth. They order the attack. But the troops are... Confused, disoriented, scattered, panic stricken. In verse nine, look what it says. Come up, O horses, and rage, O chariots, and let the mighty men come forth. The Ethiopians and the Libyans who handle the shield and the Lydians who handle the bow. In the original language, it has kush, put, lut. Kush, modern Ethiopia. Ethiopia is the Greek word for the land of the people with the burnt face. If you go way into the Nile, past what's now modern Egypt, part of what what we would call southern Egypt, and then Ethiopia, these were mercenary troops. So the Egyptian army is composed not just simply of Egyptians, but of mercenary fighters, hired guns, Ethiopians and Libyans. This is that northern area that you and I would call Tunisia, Libya and Morocco, if you will. This is the area where Muammar Gaddafi has just was recently died. But these are hired guns, Ethiopians, Libyans. And Lydia is one of two things. It's either Lud, which is the far four corner of the northwest African peninsula, or it's Lydia, which is part of the Turkish 
Peninsula. But whoever they are, again, these are the sharpshooters. These are the people who bend the bow. The most important part of the passage, the coalition armies of Egypt are exactly that. It's a coalition army made up of people groups from the continent of Africa. The Egyptian army is eager to fight. They are highly skilled. Warren Wiersbe writes, but the Lord had determined that Egypt would lose the battle. Why is that important to you and me? If God has determined that there's going to be a confrontation. Is the army that's the biggest, the most sophisticated, the most well-equipped, is that the one that will always win? Not necessarily. Not if that's what God has ordered. Look what it says in verse 10. For this is the day of the Lord of God of hosts. Note what happens in the text. This is the day of the Lord God of hosts. You see, the Egyptians think that their destiny lies in their own hands. The Babylonians think that their destiny lies in their hands. But God says, no, this day is the day of the Lord God of hosts. This is the day that I am going to bring about my plans and purposes. And the reason why this becomes important for you and me is because sometimes you might start the day and you might have plans and you might say, this is my plans for the day. And then God changes your plans. This is the day that I've set aside for this or that. But the Lord says, I'm going to set aside this day to do what I want to have done. And so he says this day, this pivotal day, this moment in history, it's going to be a day of vengeance that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. The sword shall devour. It shall be satiated, made drunk with their blood for the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. And you know who the sacrifice happens to be? It's the nation Egypt. In other words, in God's vision, he presents this battle as God taking the nation and all of their mercenary peoples and presenting it to the altar of the Babylonians in order to be slaughtered. And you might be thinking, why? Had the Egyptians dealt harshly and wickedly with the Jewish people? Yeah. Had they oppressed them? Yeah. Did what they were their actions noticed by God? Yes. So what does this mean for this is the day of the Lord God of hosts? This might come as a shock to you, but this is what the text is saying. It's a holy day. It's a divine day. It's a day of judgment. Now, that might come as a shock and a surprise to you that a day of judgment could be seen as divine and could be seen as holy. Why? Because Egypt is being punished. Why? The reason is given that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. Egypt was against God. Egypt was against God and God's plans for his people. Let me ask you a question. What happens to a nation that stands in opposition to God? They invite judgment. It's an invitation to judgment, isn't it? 
So when a nation shakes its hand or its fist, its national fist in the face of God and says, God, we don't care what you say. We don't care about your plans. We don't care about your purposes. We don't care about your plans and purposes to reach a world with the with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't care about what your unfinished business is with Israel. We don't care about the unfolding circumstances that are going to take place on the planet because we're, we're a superpower. Now, don't get me wrong. Our nation is a great nation. And arguably, our nation has been done more to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ than any other nation in modern times. Will all the good that we have done balance and make of no effect if we continue on a course of rebellion and disobedience against God? No. Because God has made it abundantly clear. Does he judge idolatry? Does he judge brutality? Does he judge violence? Does he judge injustice? And so, Egypt was against God and God's plans. And the image, like I said, is a person offering a sacrifice. And so in verse 11, it says, go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain, you will use many medicines. You shall not be cured. Remember what Gilead was famous for? It was famous for medicines. Gilead was the place where people went when they were sick, when they were injured. And so the Lord describes Egypt's losses and wounds as an incurable disease, as a, a shame that is inevitable. In other words, that this defeat is going to be so catastrophic. The wound is going to be so profound that she's not going to be able to recover. In verse 12, the nations have heard of your shame and your cry has filled the land for the mighty man has stumbled against the mighty. They have both fallen together. The images of Two great warriors stumbling over each other in order to try to get out of harm's way. But it's not going to happen. And by the way, when Necho lost, he beat it back to Egypt. Which was going to bring about the next prophecy. Of Babylon coming into Egypt and finishing the job. You see, the Lord resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The Lord resists arrogance and self-exaltation. The Lord opposes those who act with brutality and violence. He resists the oppressor. In Matthew 23, verse 12, Jesus said, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus says that the way up is really the way down. If you want to... Be elevated in your ministry. Then seek the simple place. The humble place. James 4, 6. He gives more grace. Wherefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And now think about that in, in, in James chapter four, where it says he resists the proud. The word that's used in the Greek language is is an active opposition that he's made a thoughtful Commitment to oppose 
those who exalt themselves. In Psalm, Psalm 10 too, it says, The wicked in his pride does persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices of their own imagination. When the, when the psalmist says, The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor, he gives us not only what motivates the proud, but reminds us that God watches. In Proverbs 6.16, it says, These six things does the Lord hate, yet seven a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imagination, feet that is swift and running in mischief, a false witness that speaks lies, he that sows discord among the brethren. And so the Bible says that God is watching, evaluating. And they were warned about idolatry and they were warned about misplaced trust. Now, this becomes an important thing. Judah and Jerusalem have the revelation of God. They're supposed to give the revelation of God to the rest of the world. Egypt continues in its idolatry, in its brutality, in its hostility. But make no mistake about it. God's expectation was that they were to understand who God is. And what God requires. Remember what the Bible says? He's shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk in humility with your God. And so our country is without excuse. And so every country is without excuse. And then it goes into this second prophecy. Look what it says in verse 13, the word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah, the prophet, how Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, would come and strike the land of Egypt. So this is a second prophecy after the pivotal battle of Carchemish. He says, declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdol, proclaim in Noth and in Tapanis. These are the northern cities where the mouth of the Nile River begins to empty into the Mediterranean. Say, stand fast and prepare yourselves. Why? For the sword devours all around you. What? The hostility is coming to Egypt. Why are your valiant men swept away? They do not stand because the Lord drove them away. He made many fall. Yes, one fell upon another. And they said, arise, let us go back to our own people and to the land of our nativity for from the oppressing sword. They cried there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Is but a noise. He has passed by the appointed time. As I live, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, surely as Tabor is among the mountains as Carmel by the sea. So he shall come. O you daughter dwelling in Egypt, prepare yourself to go into captivity for Noph shall be waste and desolate without inhabitant. Egypt is a very pretty heifer. It's not as bad as it looks in the text. But destruction comes. I mean, when someone says you look like a really beautiful cow, it's not a compliment. Usually it comes from the north. Also, her mercenaries are in her midst like fat bulls, for they have turned away. They have fled away and together they did not stand for the day of their calamity had come upon them. The time of their punishment, her noise shall go like a serpent, for they shall march with an army and come against her with axes like those who chop wood. They shall cut down her forest, says the Lord. Though it cannot be searched because they are innumerable and more numerous than grasshoppers, the daughter of Egypt. 
Egypt shall be ashamed. She shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north. We're going to pause for just a second. When it says in verse 13, the word of the Lord spoke to Jeremiah, the prophet, how Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, would come and strike the land of Egypt at the bottle of Carchemish. Nebuchadnezzar receives word that his father has died. He leaves the battle of Carchemish in order to secure his father's throne. And so the Egyptians are allowed to escape and go back to Egypt. But now the king of Babylon is going to consolidate his power in Syria, which is Damascus, all along the Levant, which is the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Judah and what you and I would call the Gaza Strip. He says to strike the land of Egypt, declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdol, proclaim in Nop and Tapanis. Say, stand fast and prepare yourselves for the sword devours all around you. Remember that the Jewish refugees made their way out of the destroyed Jerusalem in order to find a place where they could live and exist in peace. But remember, Jeremiah had warned them, you think you're going to be free? You think you're going to be problem free if you go back to Egypt? The best place that you can possibly be is in the center of God's will. Stay in the place where God has told you to stay. But they left the place where God told them to stay and they went back to Egypt. And he says, look, the problems are going to follow you. Why are your valiant men swept away? It's an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew, which is really difficult to translate. But I think that this has something to do with their gods and goddesses. When it says your valiant men, they did not stand because the Lord drove them away. There's there's some manuscripts that would even suggest this says, why has Apis fled? Apis is the bull. Which was one of the fertility gods of Egypt, which was admired and then worshipped by the Babylonians, admired and worshipped by the Greeks, admired and worshipped by the Romans. As a matter of fact, if you've ever seen the movie The Ten Commandments, you'll remember that um, when when the children of Israel ask Aaron to build them an image, they build a golden calf. It's this cow, this bull, this heifer, if you will, which represented fertility and health and economic stability. Um, In other words, for them, the cow was the center of their culture because it provided milk for their children and meat for the table. And it was a constant reproducible source of income and sustenance. And it says... He made many fall. Yes, one fell, one another. And they said, arise, let us go back to our own people. The picture, again, is this confusion of the armies. And now when it says, let us go back to our own people, remember the mercenary armies that the Egyptians employed? They're saying, you know what? We were mercenary killers, but, you know, we're going to go home because this isn't working for us anymore. To the land of our nativity from the oppressing sword. Jeremiah paints a picture of a battle where the Egyptian army is confronted. They stand fast. But the Babylonian army just keeps coming 
and keeps coming and keeps coming and sweeps over them. And pretty soon the mercenary army begins to crumble and they fall and then they fall over each other in their haste to escape. In verse 17, they cried there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a noise. He has passed by the appointed time. This is the Babylonians chant. In other words, the battle is taking place. The Egyptians are being crushed. The Babylonians accuse Pharaoh of being a great, big, loud mouth. When it says the king of Egypt is but a noise. In our language, we would say you're nothing but a loud mouth. You're nothing but a bag of hot air. In Texas, they would say, you're all hat and no ranch. That means, you know, you're pretending to be something that you're not. You were supposed to be this great big king. You were supposed to be um, the most important king in the world. But really, you're just full of hot air. Verse 18, as I live, says the king whose name is the Lord of hosts. Surely us Tabor is among the mountains. And Mount Tabor, by the way, is the mountain that's. Talked about in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the place where Jesus goes and and he meets up with uh, Moses and Elijah. And he goes. As surely as my name is the Lord of hosts, as surely as Tabor is among the mountains and Carmel by the sea, it's beautiful. So he shall come. Remember, this is a prophecy. The Babylonians are going to come to Egypt. They're going to come. They're going to win. You're going to crumble. They're going to have the ascendancy. You're going to have the descendancy. Oh, you daughter dwelling in Egypt, prepare yourself to go into captivity. For Noph shall be waste and desolate without inhabitant. The children of Israel ran into Egypt in the hopes that they could escape judgment. Just like some Christians will try to run away from what God wants for them. They know that God loves them. They know that God has saved them. They know that God has called them to live a different kind of a life and be a different kind of a person. And sometimes they think that they can be happy or satisfied if they could just act like the people in the world. But the world is not the place where we belong. And so when it says Egypt is a very pretty heifer, but destruction comes, it comes from the north. Jeremiah is going to use several images to describe Egypt, a very pretty heifer. Here's what I want you to think in your mind. Think. Big fat cow. Why? Because this big fat cow seems like an unending source of revenue. An unending source of economy. I think it has something to do with Apis, the bull god. And like I said, the soldiers in Pharaoh's armies are like fatted calves in the stampede in verse 21. And they flee like hissing serpents in verse 22. Remember, when you begin the battle, you hear the stomping of the armies as they approach one another. But in the retreat, you slither away quickly, quietly. So that you won't be heard. And and before the Babylonian army, they're like trees ready to be chopped down in verse 23. The invading army is like a swarm of locusts that can't be avoided. And tragically, Egypt is like a young, helpless woman. Violated. Unable to protect herself. Unable to escape in verse 24. 
And so in verse 21, it says also her mercenaries are in the midst like fat bulls, for they also have turned back. They're in retreat. They have fled away together. They did not stand for the day of their calamity had come upon them. The time of their punishment. The reoccurring theme in the Bible is that when God has ordered judgment, the judgment's going to come. Her noise shall go like a serpent, for they shall march with an army and come against her with axes like those who chop wood. They shall cut down her forest, says the Lord, though it cannot be searched because they are innumerable and more numerous than grasshoppers. The daughter of Egypt shall be ashamed. She shall be delivered into the hand of the people of the north. In other words, Egypt is going to collapse and they are going to be taken advantage of. The Lord of hosts says, I will bring punishment on Ammon of No and Pharaoh in Egypt with their gods and their kings, Pharaoh and those who trust in him. Ammon, by the way, is a word which means the hidden one. It was the local deity of Thebes and Thebes at one point was a power center of the capital city of Upper Egypt. In Middle Egypt, the deity was also known as Ra and it was worshipped under the name Amon Ra. So what does this punishment mean? Behold, I will bring punishment on Amon of No. Here's the point. It means that the gods of Egypt will be punished. They failed to rescue them. They failed to deliver them. Remember, here's what the people are thinking. Our gods are the best gods. Our gods are the ones that we can trust. The Babylonians would certainly think the same thing. Our gods are the best ones. They're the ones who can be trusted. And so superficially, if Babylon overwhelms Egypt, then they might... Simply think that the gods of Babylon are superior to the gods of Egypt. But the Bible is making it abundantly clear that the thing that has happened isn't because of the gods of Babylon. And it certainly isn't because of the gods of Egypt, because they're nothing. They have failed. They have failed to rescue them. They have failed to deliver them. The Lord asserts that he's stronger than both the gods of Babylon and Egypt. And as a matter of fact, the gods of Babylon and the gods of Egypt are worthless and helpless and useless. And so it is in the world in which we live, huh? Because even though the person might say, I believe in God. What kind of a God do they typically believe in? You know, that's not what my God is like. Well, what kind of God do you believe in? I believe in a God who doesn't care what I do. Okay, so you believe in a God who's not just. No, that's not what I said. But you just said you believed in a God that doesn't care what you do. Well, I believe in a God who unconditionally loves everybody and he'll never be mad at you. So you believe in a God who's stupid? Uncaring? Unkind? Ignorant, you believe in a God who is not just? Do you believe in a God who exercises pity and compassion and grace? Do you believe in a self existent God? Do you believe in a God who reveals himself in the Bible? Do you believe what kind of a God is it that you really, really believe in? And so here's part of the point of, of chapter 25. Jeremiah is asserting that Nebuchadnezzar won and Pharaoh Necho, Necho lost. Not because of the gods of Babylon and Egypt, because that's what God had decreed. 
And so it says, and I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives in verse 26 into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and the hand of his servants. Afterward, it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, (gasps) says the Lord. What? And I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon and the hand of his servants. Afterward, it shall be inhabited. What? There's a word of hope here. There's a word of opportunity. There's a word of redemption. Afterward, it shall be inhabited as in the days of old. In other words, even though this horrible thing is going to happen and Babylon is going to take the ascendancy and and Egypt is going to be, be in the decline, there's going to come a time when Egypt is going to go back to the way it used to be. Really? Yeah. Egypt will be restored afterward it shall be inhabited as in the days of of old here's the, the little window of opportunity the lord is saying you know what this is going to be bad for you but there's a restoration that's going to also take place now by the way as god makes these prophecies towards the nations egypt is promised restoration Moab is promised restoration in chapter 48, verse 47. Ammon, which is modern Jordan, is promised uh, restoration in in chapter 49, verse 6. Elam is, is, is promised restoration in verse 39. And then the most amazing glimpse is given. In verses 27 and 28, look what it says. But do not fear, O my servant Jacob. And do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. The children of Israel, Judah and Jerusalem, anyone who's anyone is captive in the citadel in Babylon. Babylon is unstoppable. Babylon has gone to the north captured Assyria. Babylon has gone to the far, far south, captured Egypt. They look unstoppable. The descendants of Jacob are thinking Babylon will be in power forever. No one can stop them. No one can overcome them. But he says, don't be dismayed. The descendants of Jacob are not to be dismayed. Yes, God was going to bring judgment to the nations. Yes, God was going to even judge Egypt. But that didn't mean that God's promises to Israel were null and void. Here's what what God is saying. Even though you see these circumstances and it looks really, really bad, the truth is that the promises that I've made to you are still going to happen. What does that mean for you? It means that no matter how bad things work here, politically, socially, economically, even though nations come and nations go, economic, social circumstances, they rise with the tide and they recede with the tide. The reality is that God, when he has promised things, he is going to keep them. When Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you, what do you suppose that means? I'll never leave you or forsake you. What if the Democrats are in power? I'll never leave you or forsake you. What if the Republicans are in power? I'll never leave you or forsake you. What if there's a gigantic economic collapse and the world goes to hell in a handbasket? 
I'll never leave you or forsake you. What if there's a mighty, mighty earthquake and California is literally swept into the Pacific Ocean? I'll never leave you or forsake you. Is it possible that horrible and terrible things could happen somewhere as soon as tomorrow? Don't be dismayed. The Lord brings a message of comfort and of hope. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, says the Lord, for I am with you. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. They haven't acted like servants. In rebellion and disobedience, they've done exactly the opposite of what God wanted. They found themselves in captivity because of discipline and punishment. Have you ever found yourself in a circumstance where you thought, man, I am so far from the will of God. I'm so far from the plan of God. I'm so far from the favor of God. And then God says to you, I love you and I have a plan for you. And it's as close as you turning from your sin and turning to me and trusting me and believing me and relying on me. In, in verse 28, look what it says. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, says the Lord, for I am with you. For I will make, read this for yourself, for I will make a complete end of all the nations to which I have driven you. But I will not make a complete end of you. What? Babylon's going to disappear and Egypt is going to disappear and Assyria is going to disappear. Russia can disappear and China can disappear and Central and South America can disappear. Nations can come and nations can go. But is God going to be faithful and keep his promise to the offspring of Jacob? That's what the text is saying. Look what it says, to which I have driven you, but I will not make a complete end of you. By the way, if God did, would he be justified? Yes. But he made a promise that he won't. Why? Because this is God's testimony. I have unfinished business with Israel. This is God's testimony. I have unfinished business with you. What will God do? God will do what is ever necessary to keep you alive until that unfinished business is complete. Look what else it says. I will rightly correct you. You mean they're going to get away with it? No, that's not what the text says. I will rightly correct you. For I will not leave you wholly unpunished. Now, I want you to, again, go back in time and space. Where we left Jeremiah in the northern part of Egypt, where this ragtag band of refugees have made their way into the northern part of Egypt in the hopes that they can have a better life and escape the judgment and the punishment that's going to happen. They don't belong there. God didn't want them to go there. The Babylonian invasion of Egypt would have profound and severe consequences for Egypt. But guess what? The plans and the purposes and the promises of God are still going to come to pass. They thought that nothing could stop Babylon. 
they might have wondered whether or not Jeremiah's promise could even possibly come true. And remember what Jeremiah's promise was? You're going to spend 70 years in Babylon. And then I'm going to bring you back. Into the land. Why? Because God has unfinished business with Israel. Why? Because God has promised the world that a Messiah is going to come. Why? Because you're sinners in need of a savior. Are you really going to ask why again? Because Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They disobeyed God. They opted for a different kind of a world. But God made a promise. We don't have to remain in our sin. We can receive Christ. God's promises are true. I will save you. I will rightly correct you. I won't leave you unpunished. Nations will come and nations will go. But until God fulfills his promise. The Jew is going to continue to exist. Twice the Lord repeats the admonition. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Will the nations of this world truly, dramatically, and thoroughly experience destruction? Will that happen before God's plans and purposes are fulfilled? God will fulfill his plans and his purposes. The nations may come. The nations may go. I would encourage you to reread Jeremiah chapter 23. And this is just with Egypt. We've got now chapter 47 and 48 and the rest of the nations. And we'll have little insights as we make our way through the text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that what Paul wrote, he said that these things were written for our learning, that we, through the comfort and the patience of the scriptures, might have hope, Lord, that you've given us this information, not just so that we can know more. But, Lord, so that we could love you more and trust you more and obey you more and consider that you are worthy of our loyalty, of our affection of our resources, of our future. And so again, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. That you are a God who keeps promises. That you're willing to forgive sinners. And that you'll never judge us in an inappropriate way. And thank you, Lord, that you haven't dealt with us according to our sin or rewarded us according to our iniquity, but in pity and mercy and compassion and grace, you've lavished your love on us because of Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for his love, for his willingness to forgive us and to make promises to us about heaven and forgiveness. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand.